Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Michael Mosley, is a New York Times bestselling author, physician, and science journalist. His books include the bestseller, The Fast Diet, co-written with Mimi Spencer and translated into, 20, into 32 languages, Fast Exercise, co-authored with Peta B, and The Eight-Week Blood Sugar Diet, How to Beat Diabetes Fast and Stay Off Medication. Dr. Mosley trained to be a doctor at the Royal Free Hospital in London before joining the BBC, where he has been a journalist, executive producer, and most recently, a well-known television personality. He has numerous television awards, including a Royal Television Award, and was named Medical Journalist of the Year by the Medical, British Medical Association. He's here today on Health Watch to talk about his latest book, The Clever Gut Diet. Welcome back to Health Watch, Dr. Michael Mosley. Great to be back. So you say in The Clever Gut Diet that the gut is not a glamorous organ, that when you were in medical school, people wanted to study the brain or the heart, but that actually the gut is extraordinary and that you've been recently obsessed with it. So tell us a little bit about some of the things that captivate you. Sure. I mean, we're all aware that we have guts and we know that um, they matter to us. We are aware that um, sometimes they create pain, but they're very surprisingly difficult to investigate um, because they are remote uh, in terms of being able to get scopes down there or up and have a look at them. But we're discovering now just how important the gut is to our overall health. And in particular, it's the one to two pounds of microbes that live in your gut, which is also known as the microbiome. And people are becoming more familiar with this term, the biome, uh, because being a lot more in the papers and on the news about it. And that is because there is so much new science emerging, which shows just how important these 20, 30 trillion bacteria that live in your gut are to your overall health. They affect your mood, they affect your weight, and critically, they affect your immune system. And that, in turn, is going to affect the risk you have of developing allergies like asthma, eczema, and um, gluten intolerances. So this is an undiscovered country, if you like, the gut. But um, it's come out into the light over the last few years, and that's why I'm so excited about it. This is a kind of brand new area of science, and it's shining a light on an area which was pre previously in darkness. So, so the epigraph at the beginning of the Clever Gut Diet is from Hippocrates, uh, all disease begins in the gut. Is, is, do you think this is a nod towards all the various um, health benefits of these pounds of bacteria in, in our guts? Absolutely. So he's writing, you know, well over 2,000 years ago, um, also known as the father of modern medicine. But um, I do think he had incredible insight. Um, the other thing which he was very fond of was fasting. And that is one of the things that I have previously written about in the fast diet. Intermittent fasting is something um, I helped to spread the word on about four or five years ago, and it's kind of taken off. And indeed, in Clever Gut, I make reference to it because there is some decent evidence about the impact of intermittent fasting on your microbiome in a sort of beneficial sort of way. So one of the things we know is that, unfortunately, uh, people's kind of gut bacteria in their guts in general um, have become rather less healthy over the last few decades. And um, that's one of the things I explore. It's the overuse, probably, of antibiotics plus uh, fast foods, which contain things like emulsifiers, and also the fact that we're just not eating anything like enough fiber. 
So um, the general recommended levels are at least three times higher than those consumed by the average American. And fiber is there to kind of feed the good bacteria in your gut. So this book is very much about uh, the things you can do to improve your gut biome and by doing improve other aspects of your health. So you also refer to the gut as the second brain. Can you tell us how, how, why would you call it the second brain? Sure. I mean, one of the reasons I called the book Clever Gut is because your gut is surprisingly clever. Uh, there are brain cells that line uh, the entire length of the gut, pretty much, and it's called the enteric system, but it's also known as the second brain. And these brain cells are exactly the same brain cells you would find in your skull, uh, but as I said, they're stretched along your gut. And they are responsible for digestion, for basically controlling what your gut does. But they are in direct communication with your main brain via a super fast uh, highway, which is the vagus nerve. And uh, there are as many brain cells down there in your gut as you would find in the head of a cat. And my cat is pretty clever. So that's why I called it Clever Gut, because um, your guts are pretty smart. And they talk to your brain, and your brain talks to your guts. And uh, we have these phrases about going with your gut. I've got these gut feelings. And it turns out these are uh, not just a figure of speech, but a reality that our guts do inform our brain and vice versa, that we do have a second brain that I suspect many people are unaware of. So you, you agreed to swallow a, a small camera as part of a live event at the Science Museum in London so that you and others could see what happens when we digest food. And, and one of the things that you learned is that if you want to lose weight, for instance, you should avoid any liquids with calories. So can you talk about the difference between uh, eating an apple and drinking apple juice in, in, in light of this camera experiment? Sure. So um, I had to take several liters of laxative beforehand to clear my system out. And then I swallowed this thing called a pill cam. It's a tiny little camera about the size of a sort of a moderately large um, pill, and it is linked uh, via an external monitor uh, so you can see live pictures of what's going on inside your gut. Uh, it, has, it flashes a light about 16 times a second, and it can be steered by a magnet externally. So I swallow this camera, it goes down my throat into my stomach, uh, and I'm broadcasting via the monitor to a huge screen, uh, so hundreds of people in the museum can watch all this going on and gasp with either horror or amazement. And then I decided it would be quite a nice idea to uh, have a meal. So I knocked back some apple juice, and then I ate um, uh, some steak, some chips, and also an apple. And what you could see is that the apple juice sort of shot straight through, went through the stomach and um, into the small intestine. And it's digestion really occurs in the small intestine. That's where most stuff gets absorbed. Uh, and the biome lurks uh, in the large intestine. Your small intestine is up to 20 feet long. And its primary function is to absorb the calories from the food you eat. So the fluid rushes through. Uh, and that includes, say, apple juice. And then what happens is that will be swiftly absorbed. And you'll get a big sugar spike. And that might fit, make you feel good for a little bit, but it can be followed by a sort of crash. And your body responds also by producing insulin to bring that sugar down. Now, if you actually eat an apple, or as I did, a mixture of sort of apple and steak, it was a slightly unusual meal, um, your stomach will take quite a long time processing it. 
So with the apple, it went through in about 20 minutes, but the steak was still there after an hour. So it's sticking around in your stomach, and that means you kind of feel full because your stomach is still full, and you get a very slow release of sugar. So, for example, the apple, I ate it with the skin on. I also ate the core. It comes through. It's eventually released from your stomach into your small intestine. It's got lots of fiber in it. Uh, which you don't get in the apple juice. And therefore, what you get is this much smaller increase in blood sugar levels. And that's why you can drink an awful lot of calories, say, in the form of an apple juice or a smoothie or something like that, um, than you can in the form of an apple. Um, and um, that's why drinking your calories is never a good idea, because it doesn't fill you up in anything like the same way as eating calories. And particularly, you know, when you eat food that's rich in fiber, or in the case, something like um, steak, which is rich in protein, uh, you will feel much fuller for much longer. And that is because of the sort of mechanics of it, um, how quickly the steak is broken down, or indeed how slowly it is, how slowly it is released into your system, and therefore how slowly you get these sort of big blood sugar surges. And that seems to be absolutely critical, uh, both in terms of you know, not becoming overweight or obese, but also in cutting your risk of developing things like type 2 diabetes. What you want to try and avoid are these big sugar peaks followed by crashes because they are the things that really your body does not enjoy. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Dr. Michael Mosley about his latest book, The Clever Gut Diet. One of the interesting areas in the book, Dr. Mosley, much as there's a loss of biodiversity on the globe, we're seeing a lot of species extinction in the world at large, the diversity of good bacteria in the gut is also um, diminishing as well. And you, you mentioned antibiotics, and obviously these are a significant cause, but also you, you say that this is largely because despite there being a quarter of a million known edible plants on the planet, that 75% of our diets are made up of just, fit, uh, just 12 plants and five animals. So talk to us a little bit about the benefits of increasing our gut diversity and also increasing the diversity of, of foods that we're eating. Absolutely. So the one thing that all the people who study this area absolutely agree about is that it's incredibly important to have diversity amongst the microbes in your gut. There are some of them which appear to be good, some of them which appear to be bad, but it's quite difficult uh, to you know, point at a specific you know, bacteria and say, that's a good one. Uh, in a way, going back to the analogy, uh, elephants, we basically think elephants are a good thing. We like elephants. But you wouldn't want to have a planet entirely dominated by elephants. So you can have too much of a good thing. So as I said, the key that scientists look for is diversity. And there is something called the Simpson Index. And I've had my own uh, feces samples sampled and tested many times. And I have a decent index but nothing compared to, say, hunter-gatherers. There are these hunter-gatherers who live in Tanzania who are known as the Hadza, and they have one of the most diverse biomes on the planet, and that seems to keep them super healthy. And we also, interestingly, toppies athletes who do a huge amount of exercise. Again, they seem to have a very diverse biome. Um, we also know, conversely, that people who are overweight, um, have diabetes, are unhealthy, are depressed, they tend to have a very narrow microbiome, only a few species, and uh, those are generally the kind of the bad ones. So that's what you really want to do is encourage diversity where possible. And as you say, 
antibiotics um, have, unfortunately, they wipe out a lot of the species, both good and bad. Uh, fast foods do the same thing. But critically, we're just not giving... It's, it's a bit like, you know, you want to have a rich, diverse lawn full of different vegetables you're growing or different plants or things like that. You'd probably have to scatter different forms of fertilizer on in order to encourage, you know, some, some like the, uh, this form of fertilizer, some like that. And the same is true in your biome. Some like fiber, some like the sort of phytonutrients you'd get out of tomatoes, other like the phytonutrients you would find in other vegetables. Phytonutrients are these sort of chemicals that um, plants produce, which are super healthy for us. So, again, one of the things I would urge people to do is, um, you know, eat more plants, but also go for a much greater variety of color. Get lots of color on your plate, the yellows of the peppers, the greens of the asparagus, uh, white onions and dark vegetables, and um, also fruits, things like black carrots and strawberries. Color is really, really important for the gut because it's a sign, as I said, of all these different sort of phytonutrients the plants um, are providing. And most of us are very kind of narrow in our choice of foods. Uh, we cook the same things over and over and over again, frankly, because, <laughs> you know, time is short and uh, we, we stick to the same things. And even when you go into a supermarket, you think you're seeing all this variety, but the reality is that most of the foods you see, particularly the processed foods, uh, are made up of pretty much the same stuff. They have, you know, uh, fat in it. They have sugar in it. They have uh, various artificial flavors, uh, but, and they all have quite a lot of wheat in. And so what you need to do is kind of reach out for different foods. And um, I, I, I can run through in the book a lot of the different foods and the benefits you get from the different foods. Uh, but I also suggest that people might want to try and embrace some more novel foods like fermented foods. And these are foods which have been very popular in places like China and Japan and Korea. And they are things like kimchi or the Germans like sauerkraut. And I have a section um, looking at things like kefir. And these uh, are like yogurt, but which has been fermented. And fermented sounds a bit grim, but uh, things like smelly cheeses, again, they're fermented foods. And indeed, dark chocolate is a fermented food. Um, so I'm a big fan of fermented foods because they contain huge numbers of microbes. Uh, my wife, who's a doctor, uh, she uh, likes fermenting cabbage and various vegetables. And you know that in a single teaspoon of this stuff, you're going to get billions and billions of good bacteria. And uh, that will help sort of, you know, replace some of the ones that have been lost down the years. So um, I am an enthusiast about fermented foods, particularly the stuff you make yourself, because unlike the stuff you buy in the shops, you can be certain that you're getting a really good, you know, mouthful of the stuff. Um, the problem with um, some of the shop-bought products is they have virtually nothing living in them. They've been pasteurized. So um, I actually did a study where we um, took a whole range of samples of different forms of fermented foods from, you know, which were in jars, and we sent them off to be tested, and um, none of them were growing anything at all. So it's best if you can kind of buy them in the deli or something like that, or as I said, if you make them yourself. And I also have a website called cleverguts.com where you can see my wife, the doctor, making them and the recipes for fermented foods. So if you've never tried them, uh, I would um, urge you to give it a go. Well, let me ask you a, perhaps a strange question, but making taking this connection between the gut and the brain further, 
Um, if, if we imagine that a lot of us, because we're not eating a very diverse diet because of our regular exposure to antibiotics, uh, both uh, medicinally and also within our food supply, that we only have a, a small number of bacteria growing in our large intestines instead of a diverse number, do those, can those bacteria create substances to then influence our cravings to their benefit? In, in other words, can they do they change the environment so that we actually crave the foods that would uh, keep them flir- flourishing? We know this from all sorts of studies. Um, in fact, there's a whole new branch of uh, psychiatry which is known as psychobiotics, uh, and this is about the studying the influence that the microbiome has on our brains and on our mood and things like that. So if you imagine that you've got uh, microbes down in your gut who really like sugary foods, uh, and they're going to want, um, you know, for you to consume them. And the thing about microbes, and particularly bacteria, is they don't have teeth and they don't have arms or legs or things like that, but they are brilliant chemists. They have been chemists on this planet for billions of years. Uh, they produce a lot of the things that we like. They produce alcohol. They can turn sugar into alcohol. They can do all sorts of remarkable things. I mean, they can also even digest radioactive materials. So down in, their, in our gut, they're producing all sorts of substances, including substances which affect our mood. And we know this very clearly, that down in your gut, uh, your gut is producing lots of um, neurotransmitters like serotonin, which are the kind of feel-good chemical you get in your brain. Well, your gut is also producing them. And we think that what's happening is the microbes are using this mechanism to influence our food habits and uh, our preferences and our choices. And indeed, there is an awful lot of evidence now uh, that things like depression and anxiety, um, the foods you eat can have quite a strong influence on that. Um, so, uh, and particularly on sleep. And um, that's something, as somebody who is a bit of an insomniac, has been a, a revelation for me. That simply by increasing the kind of fiber content of my meals, um, I sleep much more soundly than I used to. And um, that's almost certainly uh, because there is a particular type of bacteria in my gut called bifidobacteria, um, who, which seem to, you know, which are on the, the increase, and they produce these things called short-chain fatty acids, which, as I said, communicate directly with the brain via the blood system, and which seem to um, produce deeper uh, sleep. So uh, it's a kind of remarkably interesting area, and that's why I'm kind of really excited about it. And an awful lot of Americans obviously suffer from very bad sleep. Um, in the UK, it's about one in three who are, have some degree of insomnia, so it's a very common problem. And you mentioned a, a study that people can enter regarding potato starch. Can you talk a little yes. bit about potato starch? Yes. So uh, what I've done in, on the website, uh, cleverguts.com, is I'm uh, setting up a study where we're going to be looking at the impact of that because potato starch, uh, there is some evidence that it also le- improves the uh, levels of uh, these bifidobacteria, which seem to be in turn uh, useful for um, helping you sleep. So I, at the moment, there's not a lot of, there have been studies in rats, but not a lot of human studies. So I was curious, and uh, I do think the website is a really kind of interesting way in which you can run experiments, and so we can get some people to give it a go and uh, just see whether they find it useful or not. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of the personalized nutrition study done at the Weizmann Institute uh, about why the same foods can have very different effects in two different people? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is a, an extraordinary study which was done in over a thousand people in Israel and which was um, published recently in Nature, which is, you know, pretty much the most prestigious scientific journal in the world. And uh, what they had wondered was, if you eat bread and I eat bread, will, my bodies, will our bodies respond in the same way? And the answer was, when they looked into it, was no. Uh, that if I eat bread, I know what happens was I measured it, my blood sugars go crazy, they shoot right up. But it's quite possible you could eat it and have no impact. Or conversely, perhaps uh, I eat sushi or grapes, and that has no impact on me, but it has a big impact on you. So what they did is they looked, uh, they fed the same sort of meals to about a thousand people, and they measured their blood sugar response uh, to these different meals. And at the same time, they'd asked uh, all these thousand people to produce uh, poo samples, feces samples, and they used it to kind of uh, predict, if you like, uh, who would respond to which foods. And so now what they're doing is um, they've kind of produced an app. And there's more information, again, on my website about this. But they produced an app, and what you do is you, uh, you know, uh, it's a commercial venture now in the States, but you can um, uh, send them some money, they will send you a tube, you send them a feces sample, they send you an app, and they basically tell you which foods uh, you should be eating and which ones you should be avoiding uh, if you want to lose weight or you want to control your blood sugar levels and your hunger levels and things like that. And as I said, this is kind of well-worked-out science, uh, but it is the first time I've ever come across what I think is genuinely personalized diet that could well be effective. I mean, it's still, you know, early-ish days, but anyone who's interested, do come into the website and you'll find out more. Uh, because I do think it's fantastically interesting again and potentially a bit of a game changer. Well, before we end the program today, let, let's talk a little bit about your two-part plan. Um, at least let's introduce people to the repair and restore segment. How, how does it look when people begin your, your plan to uh, repair and restore uh, gut bacteria and, and a good diet? Sure. So a lot of people have um, gut problems. They might have irritable bowel syndrome. They might have Crohn's um, or something else. They, they, you know, they have long-running gut problems. And um, it seems the best way to treat this is, first of all, to remove certain foods from the diet. And I go into that because that's well-tested. Uh, there are some foods which are incredibly good for you when your gut is healthy and normal. Um, so foods like... Uh, Sorry, like Brussels sprouts, the so-called brassicas, the bright green vegetables, um, they're great if your gut is okay, but if it's inflamed, then they can produce a huge amount of gas and a lot of pain. So you may have to eliminate some of those. Also, wheat and dairy. There are a few things which are kind of well-proven. Uh, and you remove those from your diet for a little bit to let your guts calm down and return to normal. And then you start reintroducing some of them one at a time uh, which enables you to see which ones you're responding to. Because unfortunately, there are almost no blood tests which are reliable. Uh, if you have gluten, in, uh, gluten allergy, celiac disease, then there is a blood test. But for a lot of these things, there is no blood test available. So all you can do is try it out yourself. Uh, as I said, the best way to do it is you eliminate and then you uh, restore some of them. And by doing that, you'll discover which ones are causing the inflammation. And then you need to keep off them for a while, maybe 
say, six months, and then try reintroducing them again and see whether that helps. Because, uh, as I said, gut problems are incredibly common. Uh, and unfortunately, when you have leaky gut or you have an inflamed gut, uh, then um, you do have to kind of remove some of the things which are causing the irritation, allow it all to calm down before you start reintroducing foods again. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it has, it's extraordinarily effective is all I can say. Again, um, I've spoken to a lot of doctors who uh, have um, tried this method with their patients, and they say, uh, you know, there is utter transformation in a surprisingly short period of time. And these people who may have had problems with their guts for 15, 20 years. So um, I'm, I'm very, very uh, delighted with that because, uh, as I said, it's one of those areas which uh, doctors are not terribly good at treating. And that's partly because at medical school we don't get taught very much about nutrition or indeed about the gut. Um, so this is a kind of an, a new area of science. Uh, but um, it's one that is obviously hugely important to a vast number of people because things like irritable bowel and gut-related disorders are unbelievably common and uh, generally not terribly well treated by the medical establishment. And when you say that it's good for people to give their gut a chance to repair and restore itself by removing some of these potentially offending or irritating foods, is that the logic behind the benefits of intermittent fasting too, or is it something else that's happening uh, with the fasting that's helping uh, gut biodiversity? Absolutely. So um, I wrote a book um, a while ago called The Fast Diet, which is the one, the New York Times one, bestseller. And in that, I recommended that people cut their calories two days a week um, to about you know six or 700 calories. And uh, by doing so, that kind of gave their body a rest and there's a lot of very good science about the benefits in terms of weight loss, but also cutting your risk of things like dementia and diabetes. But it turns out that since then, they've been looking at the impact on the gut, and they found that intermittent fasting also encourages the growth of a particular type of bacteria called acmansia that lives on the gut wall. And when you, are, you, know, when you, when you cut your calories for a day or so a week, then you get growth of this particular type of bacteria, and it's very good at um, reinforcing the gut wall, and it's a very beneficial bacteria that's associated with leanness, with reduced risk of type 2 diabetes, and also with reduced risk of bowel cancer. It seems to be really one of the goodies. And so intermittent fasting, as I said, uh, benefits this particular and encourages the growth of this particular type of bacteria. So that could well be one of the ways in which intermittent fasting uh, also benefits you by changing your gut. It also leads to improvements in your general health. Well, it was a pleasure having you back on the show today, Dr. Mosley. Thank you very much. We're talking today to Dr. Michael Mosley, the author of The Clever Gut Diet. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. <laughs> 